have your Bibles, and I hope that you do open them up to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 4 through 17 this morning. Genesis 2, 4 through 17, and the title of this sermon is Doubletree. So far in this book, we've seen the glories of our God in the seven days of creation. We've watched the sovereign, powerful, omnipotent God take what was formless and void and bring fullness and form. We've seen him take darkness and bring light. We've seen him intentionally create all that there is with the word of his mouth. Last week, we saw day seven, the Sabbath, as a day that ultimately points to God as creator and redeemer, a beautiful day of rest. Today, we're going to move into chapter two, or what really should be the beginning of chapter two. And to understand what's going on here, we need to do some explanation. Many liberal scholars look at Genesis one and two, And they say, this is two different creation accounts, two contradictory creation accounts that tell different stories written by two different authors. But I want to show you that they're missing it. What we have going on here is Moses intentionally highlighting two different vitally important aspects of creation, God, and man. Chapter 1 It is like the Google Earth view of things from way up high, whereas chapter two is like the street view, zoomed way in on a specific place, a garden, and on man specifically. But as we'll soon see, this chapter again is ultimately about God and about his son and his spirit. So let's dive into the text together. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and it was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What I want us to see from the very beginning here is that Moses is very structured in the way that he's writing Genesis. And he's stylistically writing to make sure that we're following his meaning. Today, when you pick up a book, you can flip to the table of contents, and you can see how the book is divided up. Maybe an introduction, and then chapter 1 with some title of some sort. Chapter 2 with another title, so on and so forth. And by the titles of the chapters, you know that it's a new thought, but all part of one story. Well, Moses kind of does the same thing for us, and he uses the word toledot. It's the Hebrew word that's translated, these are the generations. And he does this ten different times throughout the book of Genesis to show us what's to come next. Uh, Let me just show you a couple of them to give you a taste. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And then it tells you what came of Adam. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ten different times in the book of Genesis... Moses uses this word, toledot, the generations of, to clue us in to a new division of thought. It's no different here. Back in our text, Genesis 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. What Moses seems to be doing is showing us that This isn't a second and different creation account, but a move from the cosmos, the Google Earth view, to the local street cam view. And this is amazing how he does this. Do you notice anything different about God's name here in chapter 2 from what we saw in chapter 1? 35 times in chapter 1, we saw the word Elohim for God. Elohim, 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 35 times in chapter 1. We learned that he's the focus and the central figure in all of Scripture. And that that word, Elohim, is the title for God. A title of majesty and sovereignty over all things. But here, in chapter 2, verse 4, there's a shift. Do you see it? It's not just Elohim anymore, is it? It's Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. 20 times in this section alone, he'll be called Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. That pairing only happens 16 times in the rest of the Old Testament. So Moses, in a saturated way, is going out of his way to make a point here. What's his point? Well, 
it's twofold. First, he's telling us something important about God. In chapter 1, he's Elohim. He's majestic and transcendent. And here, he's also called by his name, not just his title. He's imminent or close. He's not just Elohim. He's Yahweh. He's powerful, Elohim, and he's personal, Yahweh. He's a relational God who has a name. So yes, he's the almighty, majestic God of creation. And at the same time, he's near to us. He's intimately involved, not only in the creation, but our creation. We'll see this even more as we move forward in the text. But the second truth Moses is almost doing jumping jacks to try to get us to see is this. Yahweh is the covenant name for God. Remember the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3? We just sang about it this morning. The great I am. It's where God, Elohim, revealed to Moses his name, Yahweh. God would then redeem his people out of slavery in Egypt and personally be their God, making a covenant with them and then giving them the law in Exodus chapter 20. So what's Moses trying to tell God's people who would have been reading Genesis for the first time right after receiving the law, by the way? What's Moses telling us this morning? He's telling us That the God who created the universe by the word of his mouth is the same God who covenanted with them at, at Sinai. He's Yahweh Elohim, all powerful and relational, creator and covenanter. And this is huge for understanding what's exactly happening in this text in Genesis 2. I want to show us that while the word covenant isn't in this text, it's clearly exactly that, a covenant between God and man. Theologians throughout history have called this text the covenant of works. But let's just back up a little bit and ask a more simple question. What is a covenant? And what does a covenant entail? Well, Wayne Grudem defines a covenant as this. He says a covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. I'll add to this that biblical covenants promise blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience. As we continue to walk through this text, I want to show you that this is a covenant covenant of works, with God giving blessings for obedience and the consequence of a curse for disobedience. By using the covenant name of Yahweh Elohim, Moses is screaming to us that this text is about covenant. Further, Hosea chapter 6 verse 7 tells us as much, and this is a spoiler alert by the way, we'll we'll get to Genesis 3 eventually. But Hosea 6, 7 says this. It says, But like Adam, they, meaning Israel and Judah, like Adam, they transgressed the what? 
the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So Hosea is telling us that Adam and God had a covenant in the garden. This is it in Genesis 2. Back to our text. Let's read verses 5 and 6. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Without going into too much detail here, I want us to see that these verses are actually, in a strange way, anticipating the fall in Genesis 3. Uh, The words Moses uses here would have been buzzwords for God's people. Rain on the land would have caused them to recall Noah and God's judgment of rain on all the land. Then this phrase, working the ground, would have reminded them of the toil that they had because of the curse in Genesis 3. Remember this. The original readers of Genesis would have known very clearly that they weren't in paradise, and that the world around them was very broken. Even these first two verses, the text is nodding at them and saying, this moment in the text that we're reading all happened before paradise was lost. Then comes verse 7. Look at the text very closely with me. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. There's so much packed into this one verse that we could probably do a whole sermon on it alone. But let's just stop and mine it for just a second. I believe God wants to to show us at least two truths here. Both the glory and the humility of mankind. The glory and the humility. First, the glory. Uh, Look at this word. It's the word formed in the text. Then the Lord God formed. It's the Hebrew word yatsar, and it carries the meaning of divine intentionality. It means planned and, and shaped intentionally. Isaiah 64, verse 8. It says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. Yatsar, that's that word again. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Borrowing an analogy from one of my good friends here, are any of you familiar with a, a, a thing that's called process art? Do we have any artists out there? Process art. According to the good folks over at Wikipedia, Process art is defined as an artistic movement where the end product of art and craft is not the principal focus. The process of it, of its making, is one of the most relevant aspects, if not the most important one. The gathering, sorting, collating, associating, patterning, and moreover, the initiation of actions and proceedings. Process artists saw art as pure human expression. Process art defends the idea that the process of creating the work of art can be an art piece itself. In other words, the artists aren't too overly concerned at the beginning with what the art piece will turn into. 
They don't always know where they're going at the start. The art is more about the process. Friends, you are not process art. What Moses is saying here in Genesis 2 is that humans were formed with divine intentionality, like a potter with clay, planned and shaped with a purpose. And what's true of this first man in the garden is true of each one of you. Psalm 139 isn't just for women's ministries. Shocker! Psalm 139, verses 16 through 19 says this. This is amazing. It says, for you, speaking of God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were Yatsar formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You are not process art. You're not here by accident or by chance. You're fearfully and wonderfully and intentionally made. Mankind is made with glory through God's intentionality. But it's even better than that. As, as God's forming man, look what he does. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is about more than simply having a pulse as a human being. The animals all have pulses, but none of them have this. Throughout scripture, breath has to do with life, specifically life through God's spirit. James Boyce reminds us that to appreciate this verse fully, we must recognize the close connection between God's spirit and the word for breath. It comes from the fact that in nearly all ancient languages, particularly Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, the words for spirit and breath are identical. And we've already seen this today, haven't we? The text that we read earlier, Ezekiel chapter 37, God's word spoken over dead, dry bones. His spirit enlivens them, and they move from dead to alive. I want us to read the tail end of that text again. This is amazing. Ezekiel 37 verses 9 and 10. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Do you see that? It's God's spirit through God's word that brings life. And what would happen if we didn't have this breath in us, this, this inbreathed spirit? Well, Job 34, 14, and 15 tells us. It says, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. 
That's what would happen if God took his breath, took his spirit out of us. Psalm 104, verses 29 and 30 says, When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. God is the one who creates and sustains life within us through his spirit. This is the glorious part of mankind. We're intentionally formed, and we're given life, spiritual life, by God himself. Now, the other side of the coin is this. Not just the glory of mankind, but the humility of mankind. Look again at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. There's a play on words here. The word for ground is Adama, and the word for man is Adam. Adam came from the Adama. He's the man of dust. So interwoven amidst man's glory, Moses reminds us of where we came from, the dust. In scripture, dust is a symbol of lowness, of little worth. It's a symbol of the defeat of one's enemies. It's a sign of mourning and even misery. And I love what Ligon Duncan says here. He says, Now we know the various proponents of evolutionary theory argue that man has evolved from apes. Some say that man has evolved from dolphins. And there are various other ideas out there on the evolutionary charts. But I want you to notice that our origins, according to the scripture, are much more humble than dolphins or apes. We came from dirt. Matthew Henry notes that man was not made of gold dust, powder of pearl, or diamond dust, but common dust, dust of the ground. Are you catching Moses' drift? Calvin says it this way, The body of Adam is formed of clay and destitute of sense to the end that no one should exult beyond measure in his flesh. He must be excessively stupid who does not learn here humility. Do you see both sides here? Any greatness that we have as human beings is dependent upon God. We're dependent dust. Man's origin is one of humility. We're nothing without God. Yet, God, in his graciousness, formed us and breathed his spirit into us, making us spiritual beings, alive, and intentionally formed to have relationship with him. What a blessing. And I just want to call our attention to a text in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And this is after Jesus has risen from the grave. John 20, verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he did what? He breathed on them. And he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? He's sending them out to establish the kingdom. 
And he's doing it the same way that God did here in the garden, through the breath of his spirit, a new creation. What a privilege. Let's keep going. Verses 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. More blessings, right? The common Hebrew meaning of the word Eden is delight. And in this region called Eden or delight, God plants a garden. A garden that I hope you see is both beautiful and useful. Key in on this. It'll become important when we get to chapter 3. Notice God's generosity and graciousness here. This is one of many truths that Satan will distort. See how in verse 9, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Beautiful and useful trees, pleasant to the sight and good for food. All of them. That's the description of every tree in the garden. Treats for the eye and for the body. See here that God is not a stingy and miserly God who withholds good things from his children. God has instead blessed the man tremendously. He's in paradise with everything good provided. And there, in the middle of the garden, stood two trees. Two trees that would decide the destiny of mankind. One tree, the the tree of life, is exactly as it sounds. A tree that would give mankind immortality. We see this clearly in chapter 3, verse 22. Then, there's the second tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To eat from this tree would bring with it the experience of good and evil. More on this to come. Then we move on to verses 10 through 14. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. You see the detail in that? A couple of truths to quickly note here. I want us to see that Moses first lists place names here. Places that the Israelites would have been very familiar with. Moses wants us to understand and wanted them to understand that this is a real place. It's not fictional. It's not made up. Moses isn't telling them a fairy tale here. It's a historical location. Second, Moses wants you to see the amount of blessing here. Again, I know I've said this twice already, but consider where God's people are when they're reading this for the first time. They're in the desert, and they're reading about a land with rivers and water gold and precious stones. 
They understand the amount of blessings being described here. Third, Moses lists two places that would have had sad memories for the Israelites. One river, he says, flows east of Assyria. And the other river is the Euphrates. Both of these places would be places of tragedy for God's people in the future. So the question here is, how did we get from there, a perfect paradise of provision, to here? A desert wasteland with brokenness and tragedy. That's the question that the text wants you to be asking. Even today, how did we get from there to here? Now, God has created and provided this perfect place. And he's formed man from the dust. He's breathed life into him. What now? Well, look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We talked about this last week. This word put isn't the same word translated put in verse 8. This word is the word nuah, or rest. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, rests man in this delightful garden. And what is man there for? God gives him two roles, doesn't he? To work and keep. Avad and Shemar. These words are amazing. First, when you're working the ground, what is it that you're doing? You're cultivating it. You're making it fruitful. You're helping it to flourish. That's the word work. Second, keep. Keep comes with the connotation of guard or protect. Adam is placed in a perfect garden and then given the role of cultivating and protecting. But it's even more than that. This word pairing is unique in the Old Testament. And in the couple of other places that it's paired together in Scripture, where these two are paired together, Avad and Shemar, it's in temple settings with priests. And in those settings, these words mean to worship and obey. To worship and obey. Here's what I'm wanting us to see. We've already established a couple of weeks ago that Adam is given the role of king in the garden. He's subduing. He's given dominion over all things. And here, he's not only being tasked as a king, he's being tasked as a priest with these words, Afad and Shemar. In a garden temple, by the way, the same plants, rivers, stones that we see here in the garden are going to show up in the temple eventually. That's intentional. So just hold on to that for now. But at its core, we're meant to see that Adam is a priest who's called to worship and obey God. So horizontally, with respect to creation, Adam is a king. And vertically, with respect to the creator, Adam is a priest. Okay, tune in. Verses 16 and 17. After all of that, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, 
You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Remember where we started? What I said? This whole section was all about covenant. The covenant of works. Remember, according to Grudem, a covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship, complete with blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Here it is. We've seen blessing after blessing after blessing that God has has given man, including the garden itself, with water and food and beauty and the blessing of life from the dust through God's spirit. And here, in verses 16 and 17, we see the stipulations of the covenant. There's the obligations of verse 15, that he's to work and to keep, to obey and to worship. And here, the terms. There's permission and prohibition. Permission, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So blessing, generous provision. Then there's prohibition. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And then the consequence or the curse for disobedience. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. A couple of truths to understand. Number one, it's vital to understand that this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was not a bad tree. It just wasn't our tree. This is about trust in the covenant-making relational God, Yahweh Elohim. So will Adam find his delight in God and believe that he's enough? Or will he grasp for more? Will he trust that God is good and that he's not holding out on humanity by withholding this tree? Whose word will he trust? That's what it's all about. Adam can trust God, or he can trust himself. That's what's in front of him here in the center of the garden. This is about moral autonomy, deciding what's right without reference to God's word. So I'll just ask the question, how has that worked out for us as human beings? How are we doing with our moral autonomy? Deciding what's right without reference to God's word. I'll let you consider that on your own. Second, and most importantly, we need to understand what the covenant of works actually is. See this. Even within this covenant of works, there's grace on God's part. There's there's nothing that requires God, Elohim, to enter into relationship with man. And yet, he does. Even even in the offer of covenant relationship, there's grace. God condescending to man and offering blessing after blessing after blessing. He didn't have to do that. Very straightforwardly, even in that gracious offer, the covenant of works functions like this. There are obligations, privileges, and consequences. 
If Adam is faithful during this prohibitionary or probationary period, if he's faithful during this probationary period, God promises life and blessing and eternal fellowship with him. On the other hand, if Adam's unfaithful, God promises death. You shall surely die. Perfect obedience is required. And eternal life is promised. This is key. Perfect obedience is required for eternal life. And notice that within this covenant of works, there's no provision for continued blessing if Adam disobeyed. No promise for continued fellowship or life. But this covenant of works requires perfect obedience for blessing. And we know how the rest of the story went, don't we? Adam disobeyed as our representative head, and he brought about the curse on all of humanity. But in the covenant of grace, and this is going to shock you, in the covenant of grace, blessing and eternal life is still based on perfect obedience but not our perfect obedience. The perfect obedience of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. See this. Jesus, the Son of God, came to this earth and obeyed the covenant of works perfectly. Again, as our representative head, to make the covenant of grace even possible for us. So in one way, And you probably thought you'd never hear me say this. But in one way, your salvation is completely based on works. The works of Christ. Not your own works. Adam was given the covenant of works. And he failed on our behalf. Jesus was also given the covenant of works. And he succeeded in every way. In every way, he was without sin. He obeyed completely. And here's the deal. Remember how there were two trees in the garden? Well, there's a third tree in the Bible as well. And this tree, unlike the one in the garden, wasn't pleasant to the sight. It was grotesque. But like the tree in the middle of the garden, it would offer life. We call it the cross. And on that tree, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, our representative, would die for our sin. He would pay the penalty for Adam's sin and yours and mine. The penalty of death. You shall surely die. Jesus is the only one who's ever successfully fulfilled the covenant of works as king and priest, subduing Satan, worshiping and obeying God. And here's the gospel truth. While he's the only one who didn't deserve the consequences of the covenant of works, he took it anyway. He paid our penalty on the cross, the third tree, 
He took the curse from the covenant of works for us. But it's even more than that. He credits us with the blessing of the covenant of works as well. His righteousness, his obedience gets imputed to those, gets credited to those who repent and believe in him. And when your penalty is paid and his obedience is placed on you, you then get the covenant reward of blessing, of eternal life, and of fellowship with God. Hear this loud and clear. None of us can work our way to salvation. Only Jesus can. And he did it on our behalf. That's why our salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Eden is real, brothers and sisters. And Christ will take us there. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In closing, let us meditate on and marvel at the truth of 1 Corinthians 15, 45 and 49 once again. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Praise be to God. Let's pray.